Well, Father, we do thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the great testimony that we just heard produced by the Gideons and how your word impacts lives. Father, our prayer right now as we reach for our Bibles is that you would impact us deeply and spiritually and permanently and that uh, we would just be conforming to the image of your son, Jesus Christ, coming under his lordship, coming under the authority of your word, walking in obedience and just experiencing your will unfolding in our lives because of walking according to your word. We commit ourselves to you. Give us tender hearts. Give us listening ears. Give us focused minds, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if you've ever heard the name Ed Dobson. He's a pastor, um, became fairly well-known nationally and internationally in the uh, moral majority years with Jerry Falwell back in the 70s and into the 80s. Uh, A few years ago, Ed Dobson, who um, for many years then had been the pastor of a megachurch in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Calvary Church, decided that he wanted to live like Jesus for one year. It caught the attention of uh, numerous uh, people around the country, and even USA Today wrote an article about Pastor Dobson's year of living like Jesus. Let me read it to you. It's from 2009, right out of USA Today, Grand Rapids, Michigan. The Reverend Ed Dobson has spent most of his life following Jesus, but only now does he realize how hard it is to live like him. The retired megachurch pastor and one-time architect of the religious right has, has spent the last year trying to eat, pray, talk, and even vote as Jesus would. His revelation? Being Jesus is tough. I've concluded that I am a follower, Dobson said, but not a very good one. If you get serious about the Bible, it will really mess you up. But a year of living like Jesus has affected Dobson in deeply spiritual and unexpected ways. He has witnessed for Jesus in bars, picked up strangers needing rides, and voted for a Democrat who he believes best reflects Christ's teaching. During recent Christmas celebrations, as Christians worshipped the Christ child born in a manger, Dobson appreciated more than ever the man who preached love only to die on a cross. Everybody loves a baby, mused Dobson, age 58 at the time. But when you start reading the teachings of this baby and about the sufferings of this baby, you begin to understand better who he is. Dobson has known suffering himself. He was diagnosed in 2001 with ALS, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Neither its deteriorating effects nor his work as a vice president of a local Christian university deterred his determination to emulate Jesus. Cornerstone University President Joseph Stoll, who hired Dobson as vice president for spiritual formation last spring, said he admires Dobson's commitment but is not surprised by it. It reflects his longtime friend's desire to, quote, live outside the box, close quote, despite his health challenges. God often uses suffering to drive us deeper, Stoll said. Ed's disease has put a heart and head focus on a deeper walk with God through the person of Jesus. Dobson never knew how demanding that walk could be until he resolved to take it and found it took him in unexpected directions. 
He decided to devote a year to living like Jesus after reading a book by A.J. Jacobs, a bestseller, a best-selling account of obeying Bible commands as literally as possible called The Year of Living Biblically. If a non-religious Jew could do it, Dobson decided, so could a practicing Christian. That meant following Old Testament laws about eating, clothing, and behavior, since Jesus was a Jew whose followers created Christianity. Observing kosher dietary requirements to not mix meat and dairy products, Dobson gave up his beloved chicken and cheese burritos. I can't wait to order it for the first time in the new year, he said with a chuckle. The normally teetotaling Dobson also allowed himself an occasional drink, noting Jesus was accused by critics of being a glutton and a drunkard who partied with pagans. If I'm at a party with a bunch of people who don't know the Lord and they offer me a beer, I'll take it, said Dobson, adding, people at bars are wide open to talk about anything, including God. Dobson celebrated Jewish holidays such as Yom Kippur and Passover and often prayed at a synagogue. He refrained from work and travel as much as possible on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but made an exception to watch his grandchildren's soccer games. Obeying the biblical command not to trim beards, he let his grow as long and shaggy as an Orthodox rabbi's. It's a pain in the neck when you're eating spaghetti, he cracked. But a messy beard was the easy part of living like Jesus. The hard part is trying to live up to his teachings, Dobson said. I've realized how far I fall short. The man who preached for 18 years at Calvary Church reread the four Gospels every week. He took to heart Jesus' commands to help the poor and visit the imprisoned. He also heeded his warning that only those who do God's work will enter heaven. Jesus is a very troubling individual, Dobson said. Jesus' troubling teachings influenced him to vote for Barack Obama, his first vote for a Democrat for president. Though disagreeing with Obama on abortion, he said, I felt as an individual he was closer to the spirit of Jesus' teaching than anyone else. Obama was a community organizer, so he was into the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, which Jesus is very much into. But living the Jesus life was more personal than political. Dobson prayed daily, repeatedly reciting, quote, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, close quote, the plea of a blind man in the New Testament to Jesus, that Jesus healed. He doesn't pray to be healed of his ALS, but relies on God's goodness to help him through the slowly debilitating disease. His frame grows thinner and his hands weaker by the day. Focusing on Jesus helps. I'm getting up every day not worried about what doesn't work. I'm getting up concerned about how do I live out this Jesus stuff. The Jesus stuff has been good for Dobson, said his wife Loma. I respect him highly for doing that, but I always have respected his desire to do what he learns from the word and his relationship with the Lord, she said. Dobson said he hopes this time of economic hardship will make people think more about a Savior who came to help the poor and hungry and who wants his followers to do the same. And while he looks forward to cutting his beard and eating burritos in the new year, he won't forget what he has learned from Jesus. I intend to keep trying to live out his teachings in the new year, he said, even more seriously now than right now, even more seriously than right now, if that's possible, Dobson said.
Well, I'm not sure that I totally agree with all of Dobson's conclusions. I'm quite sure Jesus never ate spaghetti or went to his grandchildren's soccer games. But there we go, down the road of the conversation of, what does it mean to live like Jesus? What does it look like? Do I wear long flowing robes? Do I leave my beard unshaven? Do I stop eating chicken burritos? What does it mean to live like Jesus, to reflect Jesus in this world? I invite you to turn to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5, where actually, in a lot of the same way of what Dobson was doing, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to listen to the teaching of Christ. His Sermon on the Mount is found here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. We're at the beginning of it, having just concluded the section that is called the Beatitudes, these attitudes of those who humble their heart out of their sinfulness before a holy God. They are poor in spirit, and so they mourn over their sin, but they find comfort at uh, the feet of Jesus. Um, Their attitude is meek because they understand who they are before Christ. Uh, They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful to those around them, and so they receive mercy. They are driven to have a pure heart. They are peacemakers, and they are blessed because... When you live for Jesus, the conclusion of the Beatitudes is that you will be persecuted. Interesting now, as Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount, without segue, he immediately drops off the Beatitudes and goes to the converse of being persecuted for righteousness' sake, to actually arguing that if you live like Jesus... A percentage of people will see your Christ-likeness and end up turning to God and glorifying your Heavenly Father because of your good works. And in fact, not everyone will persecute you, like we just learned in our final message on the Beatitudes. So let's read verses 13 through 16 as our text today, where Matthew says that Jesus goes on in his Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is teaching, and he begins at verse 13, and he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I'd like us to just make a few few observations out of this text this morning, and then I trust that the Spirit of God will use it to continue to teach you and convict you as you ask yourself, am I living enough like Jesus in this world to be salt and light Am I making a difference? How different am I really? I do agree with Dobson that people who live for Jesus are really different. And people who are salt and light will be noticed in this world as really different. The first observation is that I believe that Jesus, as he's teaching his audience, number one, is giving a challenge to his audience. Number one, this is Jesus teaching bringing a challenge to his audience. And what is that challenge? Notice in verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. It's probably the first time they've heard this. 
It's somewhat of a parable, this allegory, uh, um, analogy, excuse me, this analogy of equating salt with a disciple of Christ. Now, I want you to think for just a minute who it is that's standing there listening to this message. We know from verse 1 that his disciples were there. I take that to include at least the 12, if not uh, any number of others who hung around Jesus and were following and listening and learning. And then, no doubt, the masses gathered because it tells us in other accounts that there was a multitude of people there. And so people are gathered around. But listen, this is just ordinary, common people. There is no reason to think that the leading citizens of the community were there. In fact, the leading citizens of the community of that day did not appreciate Jesus, nor did they follow him around, nor did they believe his teaching. It was just common, ordinary, fisherman-type, country boy people. Common, small-town folk. I'm encouraged by that. Someone said to me the other day when they were picking up some stuff at my house, they they looked around and they said, you really are a redneck, aren't you? I took that as a compliment. Yes, indeed. I work hard at being a good redneck. Piling up junk outside my sheds and stuff and never throwing away anything and being able to fix things, you know, and cut wood and keep the stove going and, you know, shoot a squirrel and cook it. and That's good stuff. Just common old country people, huh? You know, this is the kind of people that are hanging around Jesus. And here's the challenge. You are the salt of the earth. You are going to impact the world for righteousness for beyond the next 2,000 years. Just common followers of Jesus. What a challenge. Now, I would take it in this text that the listeners would, would understand what Jesus meant by this analogy of salt. You need to know that the text doesn't tell us exactly what Jesus means. So when Jesus looks at his disciples, and hence looks at us and says, you're the salt of the earth, you kind of have to scratch your head and say to yourself, now what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to be salt? I'm, I'm not used to that language. And I take it that the average listener of the day understood certain uses or presence of salt enough that Jesus could use this analogy without further explanation and the audience would understand it. So the commentaries on the New Testament and on this passage give multiple suggestions as to what did Jesus really mean when he said, you are the salt of the earth. I think there's some nuance and some truth in all of them. Let me suggest five quickly um, that we could discern. Okay, let's think about salt. Now, in our culture, when we think about salt, we think about bleached salt, right? It's white. I understand that when they mine salt out of the ground, it's not real white, and so they process it to make it white and clean. And so, number one, some commentaries suggest that when we think of salt, we should think of something that is white, which stands for purity, and surely what Jesus meant was that if you're the salt of the earth, that you are a representative of bringing a conviction of sin for purity of life. And you know, that works a little bit. I remember when I was in high school, um, my buddies knew I was a believer partly because they knew my dad was a preacher. 
And because I didn't do certain things that they did. But I went to a big, not a real big, but a public high school in southern Michigan. And uh, these guys were pretty just normal, rough, sinful, non-church, non-following Christ boys. You know, they, you know, dogs bark, sinners sin, and they were just good old boys. And, and But when I was around... I don't know, dozens of times when I was in high school, dozens of times, they would regularly look at me when they wanted to do something that was wrong, namely swear and curse or tell a dirty joke. And they would say, hey, Marceau, plug your ears. Or they'd say, Marceau, why don't you take a walk? And then they would say something that they wanted to say. Or they would say, hey, Marceau, forgive me for this, but... And then i got to say it. There was a sensitivity... Their consciences were sensitized just because a 16-year-old boy was standing there. You know, I mean, I was the only one with short hair, about as short as it is now when everybody else had hair down to their shoulders back then. So I looked different. I hope I acted different. I certainly talked different. But there would be an example of what you might say. Okay, you are the salt of the earth, and so there is a conviction for purity. Hey, guys, don't do that stuff. Another thought, secondly, is we know that salt has flavor. Not only is salt white, but salt has flavor. And it is used for seasoning, right? Put a little salt in here and put it on your homegrown tomatoes, you know, and eat it like an apple. That'd be good. A redneck would do that, wouldn't he? Would he sit around and eat it? Uh, Put salt on your watermelon. Do you do that? Put salt on your watermelon and eat it. That's good. Because why? It brings out some flavor. It it draws out and it has flavor. It has a spice effect, um, you know, a seasoning effect. And so you can draw the analogy there. Jesus looks at us. He looks at his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. You are You are to season this earth. You're to bring some uh, quality to it, a flavor to it that is like Christ so that people have an appetite for Jesus. That could be, most people I find um, probably don't have a natural appetite for Jesus. And so they need someone to flavor their world with Christ. You show them that Christians uh, do understand what it means to have true life and and to, to... have a change of life. Thirdly, we know that if you've ever soaked your ankle in Epsom salts or uh, you've had some cuts on your hand and you were soaking a, a sprained wrist or a swollen thumb that had infection in it from some, a wire cut or something and you decide you better soak it in salt water, what happens? We know that salt, when it gets into cracks in your skin or when it cuts, it stings, it burns, right? And it draws out. And so when it touches this cut, it, it stings and it makes it feel very uncomfortable and So some would suggest that when Jesus is looking at the audience and he says, you are the salt of the earth, that it's our job to make the world who doesn't know Christ feel very uncomfortable. Maybe a little bit like my high school illustration as well. A fourth reason, a fourth suggestion is that salt creates thirst, doesn't it? When you eat a lot of salt, you get thirsty. And so some would suggest that um, as... People watch us. And maybe that's a little bit what Jesus is talking about here. That as people watch us, there would be a puzzle there. But maybe there would be a little bit of this sometime. A thought goes through their mind. I really like that guy. That, that girl. I wish I could be more like that. I wish I had that kind of self-control. I wish I had that kind of behavior. Even in the midst of their own sinfulness. They recognize in your life something that they want. That could be 
That's a fourth suggestion. The commentaries seem pretty uh, equally committed to a fifth view, though, and it has to do with the, the fact that salt preserves. When we look at our text, it does say in the ESV about, you are the salt of the earth, and it says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored. The idea of the taste there has to do with the bite that the salt has. Maybe you've seen your mom or maybe in your home you've had salt shakers that have been in moisture on a camping trip or something and it's kind of gobbed together or it's gotten old and now salt is still salt. I, I, I couldn't remember what the chemistry chart said it was. Somebody on the way out handed me a yellow card. N-A-C-L. Is that what it is? That salt? N-A- you guys amaze me. Salt, N-A-C-L. That's really important for you to remember, okay? But So salt is always N-A-C-L, right? On the chemistry chart, on the elements chart, would that be correct? All right? I took shop and phys ed and band, all right? And uh, got out of there as fast as I could. And, um, uh, and so uh, it's still on the elements chart, N-A-C-L, it doesn't change. But salt can kind of lose its bite a little bit, right? It loses kind of the intensity, the draw power of it. And, and so in this culture, as was common even like in the days of our Old West or pioneer days, salt was used to preserve meat. They would pack meat in drums or, or barrels and they would layer it in salt and put it in salt. And that salt would preserve it and keep it from rotting. Isn't that interesting? But salt that had gotten stale or mixed in with other elements lost that power. It lost that bite. It didn't taste. You put salt on a corn of a corn on the cob and you salt it down and you're like, I can't taste this salt. And so what do you do? You throw it out in Jesus illustration. And they must have understood it because they didn't have herbicides back then. They used salt for an herbicide. Take some of that old salt and throw it down on the walkway where the weeds are trying to come up and the salt still, N-A-C-L, sodium chloride, has the ability to kill weeds. But Jesus said, that's not my point. I don't want you to be trodden underfoot. I want you to have seasoning. And maybe a little bit of all of the five elements that I talked about, this whole idea... Of, of salt being a representative of purity, having flavor, a sting or a bite to it, creating thirst. But this idea of preservation in our text, that if the saltiness loses its power, you throw it away. And, and the idea that it's also, in the grammar, absolutely parallel with verse 14. You, verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. You have a parallel thought right, right here, right? And so my conclusion is that this idea of a, of a preserving power, salt keeps things from rotting. Salt stops rottenness. Light shines in darkness. Salt stops rottenness. Light shines in darkness. Do we live in a world where we need to hold back the rottenness? Do we live in a world that is ever increasingly darkening so that there needs to be a light in the darkness? There's the challenge by Jesus to his disciples. You are the salt of the earth. No doubt his listeners understood precisely his point. We'll glean from those thoughts. 
Secondly, I want to observe from this passage that Jesus is teaching to live our lives as evidence. To live our lives as evidence. He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be trampled under people's feet. That's the challenge to his audience. And now here's the, the idea that we're to live our lives as evidence. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand and, give, and it gives light to all in the house. You would never light a lamp. You would never turn on a flashlight. You don't do that to hide the light. You do it to give evidence, to be open, to be clear. Here I am. And so part of the call of Christ is that His disciples, yes, they're to be a preserving nature against rottenness, but they're also to shine out in the darkness, and they're to be seen, they're to be clear evidence that Jesus' people are here. Here's evidence. I wonder if anybody ever thinks that. That guy up there on that scaffold, he, he gives evidence of being with Jesus. Uh, do you remember in Acts chapter 4, we were in this text on Easter, when Peter and John had healed the lame man, and then they got arrested for it, and then they were brought before that kangaroo court, and they didn't know what to do with them in Acts 4, and one of the things that became evident that they concluded, they said, these men, though they are common and ordinary, have been with Jesus. They were evidence. You know, there's a couple other passages in the New Testament. Let, let me read them quickly to you. One that is so good is Philippians chapter 2. These are relatively common passages. But in Philippians chapter 2, listen to verses 11 and 12. Philippians 2, 11 and 12. Excuse me, um, 14 and 15. Philippians, uh, yes, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, listen to this, among whom you shine as lights. How do you shine as lights in the middle of a crooked and perverse generation? He says, by doing things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, by our spirit. By our attitude, people will look and see evidence of Christ in us. That's incredible, isn't it? And then again in 1 Peter, listen to what he says. Another common passage where he talks about us being in the light. Um, 1 Peter, it's not in this Bible this morning. There it is. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, pilgrims, and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Doesn't that sound like what's going to come up here in verse 16? That by your good works they will give glory to God. Look what he said in... Peter got that right from Jesus in verse 12 of 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles so honorable that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and end up glorifying your Father in heaven. 
Gentiles there is used for anybody who's outside of Christ. Anybody who's not a follower of God and His Word. Again, how is it that we represent the light? How is it that we are evidence in a lost world? By our good deeds and by our attitudes. That our actions and our attitudes would be such that people would see the evidence of Christ. And so when we read verses 14 and 15 back in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. You can't hide a city that's up on a hill. It's the picture everybody in the country could see. You know how dark it gets in the country? And then you're walking down a road, and you look ahead, and on a high ground there's a village, and the lights are on. Some of you flown in a small plane over rural America, or maybe up in the air in a jetliner, and you've looked out on a clear night, and you see dark, 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 and then all of a sudden there's light. You can't hide that light. It's not supposed to be hidden. You don't light a candle, then he says. Don't light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. This light is to shine out and penetrate the darkness. Thirdly, I want you to see that what Jesus is teaching here is the Christian life is influence. The Christian life is influence. Yes, this passage is a challenge to his audience. We're to live our lives as evidence. But I want you to see that the Christian life is to be influence. In the same way, verse 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. As I referenced in our introduction time, not everyone coming out of the Beatitudes where he talked about persecution, not everyone will persecute you for Jesus. Somewhere in the audience is someone that God is poking at their heart. God is stirring their mind and they're watching you. They're watching your work ethic. They're listening to your language. They're watching how you treat your wife and your kids and your dog. They're watching how you carry yourself in difficult circumstances when the pressure is on. When the concrete starts to turn on a hot afternoon and you're losing it and you're the foreman on the job. They're watching you. When you hit your hand with a hammer and you're a blacksmith, Even if you're all alone out in the barn, they're watching you. How do you react? You're you're not only evidence, but your life is designed to influence others. Let me conclude with a word picture. One of my favorite things was when I would go home to my mom and dad's house in southern Michigan is to water ski late at night, right before dark, or right as dark was settling in. A couple of fishermen who were slipping out at that time on that glass-smooth water didn't like it. But right in Michigan, in eastern, far west in the eastern time zone, it would be about 9.30 at night. And out on the lake, out from under the trees, you could still have light. I'd come up on my ski and take off around the lake for one final loop late at night. It's one of my favorite moments. Take one big loop around the lake, trying to soak it in because tomorrow we're back home, back to work. You know, when you're behind that boat and that ski boat, big inboard, outboard takes off, big ski boat takes off, you're working the wake. You know what I mean? And right away, as soon as I get up, I'd like to get outside the wake and take off, man, and just go. And he'd take me on a big loop around the lake and then just come in, right in on just great. The other night, I 
in my mind, I went there, I stepped outside my garage at dark, and it was perfect weather, and it was cool, and, and, and it, the smell of my backyard took me to my dad's backyard right there a few feet away from the shore of Christie Lake. I want you to picture that wake coming off that ski boat, those waves that come off. You know, as the boat plows through the water and powers through the water, there is a wake. You know the word wake? The boat leaves a, a wake. Do you know that every life leaves a wake? Do you know as you plow through life, you are leaving a wake? You, you are leaving things behind you. You plow through today and, and you... What's in your wake? What kind of wake? Are you leaving a wake of broken relationships? Are you leaving a wake of frustration and difficulty? Are you leaving a wake that, that speaks of selfishness and pride and arrogance? Or are you leaving a wake of people whose lives have been touched by Jesus because you're salt and light? What kind of wake? What's in your wake? Let's be salt. Let's be light. Amen? We're to be evidence that Christ is alive and real. And we're to live lives of influence that people would look at me and not be confused by anything. He really reminds me of someone. Who is it that he reminds me of? Who is it that she reminds me of? Oh, I got it. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. I take it from Jesus' teaching that that can happen. And the Spirit of God can use your life of salt and light to turn people's hearts to glorify your Father who's in heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to leave awake, filled with responses to your gospel, bumping into people, reminding them of you. Would you please show us how to do that? Would you please show us how to get rid of the dross, get rid of the junk, be convicted about our sinfulness, change our language, even maybe change the way we look, change our attitudes, control our tempers, spill over with love, that in our wake we would leave a trail of people who are pondering and looking to you because of our good works. That's our prayer this morning, Lord. Show us how to do that. Change our hearts. Make our lives all about Jesus, I pray. In his name, amen.